welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show, coming at you from Moray Bay Studios, where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibilities. If you happen to be in South Florida, you may be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. My guest today is Walter Block. Walter is an economist, philosopher, and author of a number of books, including several versions of Defending the Undefendable, Each of these includes a series of vignettes about a group of people who are maligned by our society, like the slumlord. The third and most recent edition of Defending the Undefendable came out recently. Walter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's good to be with you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. I like to begin conversations with any connection I might have with the person I'm talking with. I worked briefly for a publication called Liberty Magazine in the mid-90s. I assume you're familiar with Liberty. Yes. yes. When I worked at Liberty, one of the things that we would do is just hang out and have conversations. That was fairly often. And during those conversations, of course, we talk about a variety of different things. And one of them was a particular undefendable person that you portrayed, the blackmailer. Maybe we could start out with that particular person and why you chose to defend them. Right. Um, nowadays, uh, under politically correct uh, circumstances, you're not you're supposed to use the word black in any way that demeans black people. And uh, this would certainly apply to blackmailer, although uh, what it meant uh, originally had nothing to do with um, uh, African-Americans or black people. Uh, (laughs) That's just a little side note. Um, But you have to distinguish blackmailer from extortionist. What do they have in common? What they have in common is that they most, both of them make a threat and a demand. The extortionist says, uh, pointing a gun at you, give me your money or I'll shoot you. Or give me your money or I'll kill your kids. Or something very bad where the threat is uh, a violation of rights. Whereas in blackmail, there's also a threat with a demand for money or sexual services or something. But the threat is very different. It's now, give me your money or I'll engage in free speech. Namely, I'll blackmail you. Uh, I saw you the other day out with this lady, a beautiful lady who is not your wife, and I'm gonna tell your wife. I don't know if you're married or not, Matt, but uh, 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 I'm making this threat against you. And uh, let's suppose you're married and that you were out with some lady who is not your wife and your wife would be happy to know this. And um, do I have a right to carry out my threat? Well, yes, under libertarian law, um, free speech, and um, um, I don't know, a gossip. Uh, I'm now going to gossip. So the difference between the blackmailer and the extortionist is that the extortionist, they both make a threat coupled with a demand for money or some other favor. Only the one, the threat is uh, per se a rights violation, namely it's a threat. And the other is just a, 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 a threat 
uh, well, it's a threat to right to violate rights. Whereas the other blackmail is a threat merely to engage in gossip, and gossip is legal. So uh, you have to distinguish between the two. And obviously, the libertarian cannot support the extortionist. Can the libertarian support the blackmailer? Well, support um, comes in various shades. One way to support it is to say it's good. Now, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I don't think blackmail is nice, and, and I, I don't do it, and I wouldn't want it done to me, and it's pretty nasty. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, should it be legal, or should, it, uh, should I go to jail for it? Uh, should it be illegal? Well, extortion should be illegal, and if I made that threat to you, which obviously I'm not making, I should go to jail because I'm a, I'm a lawbreaker. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, I should not go to jail um, for merely making a blackmail threat. Uh, let me give you a change the subject just for a second. Take prostitution, another um, uh, defending um, uh, uh, another defense that I offer in this book. I defend prostitution not because I like it. Uh, I don't think it's good. I think the much better way to relate to um, uh, other people is uh, through love and, and uh, uh, cherishment and uh, benevolence. And I don't think it's a good way to deal with people to buy and sell sexual services. But the question is, should you go to jail for it? And the libertarian would say, absolutely not, because the libertarian re uh, reserves jail or um, violent actions against only for rights violations, things like murder, rape, theft, arson, kidnapping, uh, uh, fraud, things like that. So now back to blackmail. Uh, I'm only defending it in the sense that I don't think it should be prohibited by law. I'm not defending it in the sense that I like it. On the other hand, we can now say, who would you rather be in the hands of, a blackmailer or a gossip? And the answer from a pragmatic or utilitarian point of view is, you'd rather be in the hands of a blackmailer than a gossip, because if it's a gossip, it's game over. Your wife gets told that you're stepping out with this other lady. On the other hand, the um, blackmailer has the decency, and I use the word um, uh, thinking about it, the decency to come to you and say, hey, um, uh, give me a thousand bucks and I'll shut up. Whereas with the gossip, it's over. And if you value the secret at more than $1,000, let's say you value it at 1,500, you are making a profit by giving me 1,000 bucks because I'm performing a service for you, the service of silence, and it's worth 1,500 bucks. And I'm only charging you a stinking lousy thousand and you're making a $500 profit. A, a true win-win. Right, uh, well, <laughs> you would rather that I never saw this, in which case you wouldn't have to pay me anything. But, uh, I'm only now comparing it with the gossip. And, uh, and if the gossip saw you, it's game over. You know, your, your wife uh, finds out about this. Uh, and then the, uh, another question comes up, well, suppose you approach me. I don't approach you. You approach me and you say, hey, uh, Walter, I saw you looking at me with this strange lady and, um, um, and uh, we came out of a motel room, so I can't really get away with a lie as to what we were doing. But um, I'll give you um, uh, a thousand bucks if you shut up, because I know you're a gossip. And now you're approaching me. And um, uh, should I go to jail for this? Should you go to jail for this? Well, that's the defense of blackmail. I think that the, the distinction there of the moral and the legals, it's very important. Obviously, you need to separate those two, though 
I, I think one of the things that made the arguments so intense at uh, Liberty was that we were looking at the broader social context and not just the individual act. At a, at a broader level, is it good for people to blackmail one another, or is it better for people to take a binary approach and either decide that this is something so awful that it needs to be made public, or just shut up and go about their business? Right. Well, there are other benefits of blackmail and of gossip. Namely, um, uh, this will stop, um, what do you call it, uh, when you go out with another lady? Um, uh, adultery? Adultery. And it will tend to slow down adultery. And also, it'll tend to slow down robber gangs. Because, um, you know, there's specialization and division of labor and everything. Uh, you know, you work as a carpenter, I work as a plumber, even though we have equal abilities when we start out. And eventually you get to be really good as a carpenter and I get to be really good as a plumber or whatever it is we're specializing. Well, it's the same thing with gangs. Uh, a gang of two or three people is much more efficient than three times any one individual because they can each specialize in things. You know, you're good at guns. I'm good at driving away, uh, getting a getaway driver. A third one is good at planning. Uh, we three have a much better gang. We're much more efficient uh, than uh, triple any one of us. But if blackmail is legal, then there'll be more blackmail, we presume. Uh, demand curves slope downward, you know, and uh, the, the more penalties you uh, offer, the, the less they'll be. And if we have very serious um, uh, repercussions, uh, we call it a crime, uh, there'll be less blackmail. Uh, whereas if there's more blackmail, then we three members of the gang can start blackmailing each other and it'll make the gang less efficient. So that would be another pragmatic uh, justification for blackmail. But I'm not that much of a pragmatist nor of a utilitarian. I'm much more of a deontologist, namely I look at what are the rights. And I ask, is it a rights violation to gossip? And, and no. And then is it a rights violation to offer silence uh, for a fee? And again, I, I say no. Just because you offer um you know, if I were a nice guy and I liked you, I would keep silent about it. But uh, now I charge you for, the, for my silence and all of a sudden it's bad. It's very similar to yet another case. Let me, let me uh, change the subject again. Uh, if, I, if, uh, if I had a, a bad kidney and um, my kidneys weren't functioning and you have two of them and you were a nice guy and you just gave me one, that would be perfectly legal. No problem with that. However, if um, you charge me 10,000 for that kidney, all of a sudden, the same act, namely transferring a kidney from your body to my body, now becomes illegal just because money changed hands? Well, from a libertarian point of view, uh, we don't think that just because money changes hands, uh, something should be um, uh, changed from legal to illegal. And if it's okay for you to donate a kidney to me, it should be okay for you to charge uh, a kidney for me. Now getting back to blackmail, I hate to keep changing the subject. But... <laughs> That's fine. I'm, I'm going to take the blackmail in a, in a different direction in just a moment, but go for it. Uh, if And just uh, for the listeners, we are I'm talking with Walter Block, and we are talking about his series of books defending the undefendable. Right. And uh, so one case is I just offer silence, or you ask me, you plead with me to keep silent, and I say, okay, and uh, for free. And that's okay. And, and now all of a sudden you pay me for it, or I ask you for money, and somehow that becomes not uh, legally uh, okay. Uh, I, I think the, the distinction we're looking 
before was uh, cr- uh, crimes versus vices. Moral versus legal, yes. Moral versus legal, crimes versus vices. I, I think prostitution is a vice, but I don't think it should be a crime, even though in many jurisdictions it is a crime. And uh, similarly, I think blackmail is a vice, but I don't think it should be a crime. Let's Whereas, talk about, yeah, go ahead. ahead. I was going to talk about something that was related to the thing that you talked about when you were talking about blackmail, making a distinction between that and extortion. Uh, my own philo- philosophical take tends more towards the consequentialist, meaning that I'm not unconcerned with the moral, but in the end, I'm mostly swayed by what are the results of this particular policy or social structure or whatever it is. And one of the ones I thought about when I was reading back through your your first book and then reading through the third one was the case generally of ransom and that while I think that on the individual level, it is certainly the case that it wouldn't seem that I'm committing a something that should be illegal per se if I pay off uh, someone who has taken a family member ransom. At the same time, at the societal level, from a consequentialist viewpoint, the best way to approach this would be simply to kill the people who held anyone ransom and be done with it, even if that meant that the hostage themselves got killed. The consequences of that policy at the societal level are certainly much better than the consequences of a society in which, let's just say, it's fine to pay off your, you know, the hostage takers. Now, that that is very true. Uh, the, uh, you know, one of the um, struggles that we all libertarians have is to unite utilitarianism and deontology. Could you define that? Well, we want to unite them. We want uh, we want everything uh, everything moral uh, to be um, pragmatic. Also, we want uh, rights. Uh, we, libertarians look upon these things from two two eyeglasses. One eyeglass or one eye is um, is it right or wrong? And the other is, is it pragmatic or not? Is it utilitarian or not? Will society benefit? Will we prosper? Uh, and we want the two to come out the same. And here, it seems that uh, there's a, a bifurcation or a diver- divergence. Because on the one hand, uh, let's forget about ransom for the second. I'm now going to hold the gun at you, and I'm going to say, give me your money or I'll shoot you. Now, um, you know, uh, I have to tell you a joke. Jack Benny was a, um, a marvelous comedian, and he once did a skit like this, and, and some actor came up to him with a gun, said, give me your money or I'll shoot you. And uh, Jack Benny was silent. And, and then the, the guy repeated himself, and, and Jack Benny says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Because <laughs> Jack Benny had this um, reputation as being a real skin flint. Now, from your point, from a rights-based uh, point of view, you're excused if you give me money because it was under duress. That's my claim. However, from a pragmatic utilitarian point of view, if nobody ever gave anyone any money when they uh, were held up by a gunman, uh, there'd be no more gunmen. Uh, well, I, I like your example, though, of course, once you're shot, there's a pretty good chance you're going to lose your money. Ah, <laughs> uh, That's true. That you're going to get shot anyway. <laughs> but supposing supposing that they couldn't take it off, you supposing it was a password, I'll, I'll, uh, let's just roll with it and say that what they want from you is the password to your encrypted store of, of, of whatever, right? Crypto. I, I thank you for that help. I need all the help I can get, and I'm very grateful to you for that help. Right. 
if um, if you just refuse, I'm the gunman, you're, you're the victim, and you just refuse to give me the secret code, and I shot you, uh, I wouldn't get the code anyway. So the point is, um, nobody would ever do this. Uh, on the other hand, if you give me money, I can now buy a bigger gun and go rob other people. So from a societal point of view, or from a utilitarian point of view, uh, it would be very bad for you to give him the money. And yet from a, um, a libertarian legal point of view, I would say you should not be considered a criminal for giving me money, even though you're aiding and abetting me and now I can buy a bigger, better gun and, uh, and hurt other people. Why? Because it's under duress. Well, now let's get back to ransom. I think something similar is going on there. Uh, your child or your parent or your sibling is, is now uh, a hostage. And, and I'm the bad guy and I, I uh, hold them hostage and I say, give me money or I'll, I'll shoot them. And um, should the law be preventing you from giving me money? Well, if the law were that way, we would have a, um, a better society because um, uh, ransom would no longer be undertaken because uh, it would be, well, I wouldn't say it would no longer be undertaken, but a lot less of it would occur because it would now be illegal uh, and, and if uh, and, and if we caught we the police caught you giving me money, if the police caught you giving me money uh, to ransom your your family member or your wife or a child or, or someone like that, um, you would go to jail. So you'd be less likely to do it. And we would stop you. Uh, uh, the police would surround your house and we would um, prohibit you from giving uh, the uh, ransom uh, guy any money. Well, then there'd be no ransom or a lot less of it. But, you know, I think we can operate under duress. I, I think a law like that would be unjust. I know if my child or wife or sibling uh, were, were captured, uh, um, I, I would wanna pay it off, even though I know that that would help the ransom gang go and kidnap someone else. So um, this is a, a, a difficulty for libertarianism. I think that this actually gets to the heart of the problem of the state in general, which is that, of course, it funds itself with money taken from people under duress, right? And assuming that one could uh, resist that and didn't end up dead and with your possessions taken, then certainly certainly paying off the mafia is is not a social good. And if the state is essentially a, a mafia writ large, then every, every penny that you give to it is only enabling it more and allowing it to be, buy more guns and so forth. Yeah, well, I would say if we ever had a libertarian Nuremberg trial, what we would do is put in jail not people who paid their taxes views under duress, even though it helped the government, the evil government, uh, but how about people that lent the uh, government money? How about people that gave money to the government more than what they owed in taxes? Now, they're aiding and abetting uh, the criminal gang. Let's stipulate that the government is a criminal gang. We're, we're into Spooner now or whoever we're into. Uh, I would say that those people would, would have a problem with the libertarian Nuremberg trial, but not every taxpayer. I, I don't think we'd want to put every taxpayer in jail, even though they paid taxes and then the money was used to bomb. Well, it, it would be everybody in jail then, in, in that case, I think would be part of the problem there. And we're going to have to take a break right now, but we'll be right back and maybe we will get into suicide.
Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keystalk FM. I am talking with Walter Block, an economist, philosopher, and author of a series of books about defending the undefendable. Just before the break, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about suicide, and it's not actually suicide directly. But one of the chapters I found the most interesting in your books was about the suicide instigator or the person who urges someone to suicide. How, why should we not view that in the strongest possible negative light? Well, we can. I mean, that's pretty despicable. <laughs> uh, I, I think we should look upon it uh, in the strongest possible, well, maybe not the strongest possible way, but we should look upon this very, very negatively. It is a vice. It is nasty because life is precious. Uh, all life is precious. Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as say all because there's Hitler and Stalin. Um, maybe their life is precious too. Maybe they should only be put in jail um, uh, forever and, and not executed. I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that more. But most life is precious. Uh, and I would say all except for the Hitler and the Stalin types and uh, mass murderers. Now, I would also, so again, we, we have the vice versus crime business or moral versus legal. And uh, children are a, special, a different issue. I mean, if you um, uh, try to get a kid, a five-year-old or a 10-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid to commit suicide, I think that should be a crime, not, not just a vice. I think that should be a crime. But let's talk about adults. Matt, I'm now going to try to tell you to commit suicide. Um, suicide is good. You'll have no more problems. Uh, I hope you're not taking me seriously. I'm just. Uh, You'll have to do better than that to convince me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I will say something about this, Matt, about suicide. If I saw you at the edge of a bridge ready to jump to your death, you know what I would do? I would violate libertarian principle. Namely, I would uh, grab you. And, and that's assault and battery. Anyone who grabs anyone else against their will is assault and battery. Grabbing and wrestling is not assault and battery, or punching is not assault and battery in boxing, because the wrestlers and the boxers have agreed to allow other people to do this to them. But you're now jumping, you're standing at the edge of a bridge at the edge of a mountain, and you're about to jump off. And uh, I am going to violate libertarian principle, and I'm going to grab you. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kidnap you. We were talking about kidnapping before. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kidnap you and I'm going to try to say, look, just because your wife left you and you failed your exam, uh, there are other women out there and uh, there are other exams. And I'm going to try to uh, uh, convert you to the one true faith, namely life. How long am I going to do it? Oh, a day or two or three. I'm not going to do it for 10 years. If you want to commit suicide after, say, a week and I've uh, tried my best and I've brought in my friends who are psychologists, um, uh, I'm going to let you commit suicide eventually. But what I'm going to do is uh, go off the libertarian reservation. And then what I'll, I'll if you want to sue me, uh, I, I'll admit my guilt. I'll, I'll say I'm willing to pay the penalty for kidnapping. Now, I'm hoping that I'll get a, a slap on the wrist because this is a different kind of kidnapping than uh, other kinds of kidnapping. It's more like uh, if you were standing in the path of an onrushing truck and I pushed you out of the way of the truck and I broke your ribs. Well, that's also assault and battery. I'm not supposed to be breaking people's ribs. However, if you look at the context here, uh, I was saving your life. I wasn't, you know, hurting. I wasn't trying to hurt you, although I did hurt you. The interesting case is if I push you out of the way of the truck and then you fall into the water and I don't swim and you drown. But uh, those are complicated uh, philosophical issues. But let's get back to uh, suicide since that's what you asked me about. 
um, I, I think that if I, um, okay, so that's what I would do if I saw you at the edge of a bridge. However, suppose I was a nasty person and you were uh, hovering between jumping off and not jumping off. And I started in, uh, uh, the water is fine. Uh, come jump in, it'll end all your problems. Don't fear you know, the I, reaper. I'm sorry? Uh, it, uh, song lyric there, don't fear the reaper. Just, uh, all right, don't yeah. fear the reaper. I, I give you all sorts of um, uh, pro-suicide uh, statements. Did I commit a crime? I don't think so. I, I, I don't think that I uh, violated rights uh, because you're an adult, I'm an adult. I'm, uh, now look, if I drugged you before and I drugged you with something that sort of makes you suicidal and then uh, you, would, uh, you like life enough so you are sort of overcoming this drug, well, now if I did it, I'm a criminal but not, not for trying to convince you to commit suicide, but for giving you the drug, which is uh, sort of a rape. Uh, uh, a bodily violation for sure. Property violation. And now I'm, I'm uh, aiding and abetting and making it even worse by trying to convince you to commit suicide. I'm a criminal, not just an immoral person. So that would be my defense of someone telling someone else to commit suicide. And there was an actual case where there was a, a, a boy and a girl, well, a man and a woman, uh, they were, I don't know, 21 and 22, and she convinced them to commit suicide. Boy, is she despicable. But is she a criminal? I don't think so. Getting to your, uh, your thoughts on that you would actually intervene, even if it meant violating that person's right, say, to throw them off a bridge uh, temporarily, I think one of the things that people have the hardest time talking about, and this is certainly the case within the libertarian community from what I've seen, is just the general idea of transgressions and repentance and atonement. People start with the assumption that you're not supposed to violate anyone's rights, and then when that happens, even in a, an example like you gave, where it seems like probably ethically a good idea if you can step in in a reasonable way to do it, then you know, then there's kind of a blank out on, well, what do we do with this instead of a, a more calm conversation about, okay, so you did something to help them out, but at the same time, it was a transgression and maybe you owe them something about this. There was actually one of those problems that for some reason caused people's heads to explode about if you, if you fell out of a window and then you caught onto a flagpole uh, and, you know, and the owner of that flagpole demands that you drop off that flagpole down to your death. Well, no rational person would do that. No reasonable person would, would do that. But unless you have a reasonable system of kind of transgression and, and repentance or whatever it is, atonement financially or whatever it is, then you don't have a good way of dealing with that situation that involves saying, well, screw you. I don't care that you want me to drop to my death. I'm crossing your, your apartment and we're just going to have to find some way to make amends. Well, you're raising two issues. One is libertarian punishment theory. And the other is the flagpole, the 15th floor flagpole. You're on the 25th floor. You lean over the balcony too far. You fall to the 15th floor. Happily, there's a flagpole. You grab onto it. And you want to go hand over hand down into the apartment. You're totally innocent. You just want to get back to safety. And then you'll go back to the 25th floor and you'll be more careful when you get back up there. And uh, this is sometimes used as a um, uh, by uh, to attack libertarianism to attack private property rights. And I say, the, uh, this is the wrong way to look at it. 
I don't know if I stuck this in Defending the Undefendable, but I have written um, on, the, on the flagpole, and then later I'll get into libertarian punishment theory. Um, see, the, the question that they pose is, should you um, uh, drop to your death or should you go hand over hand and uh, into this um, person's apartment? And I say that's an improper question to ask libertarians. You can't ask a libertarian that. Libertarian theory has no view on that. Rather, uh, libertarian theory only answers one question, and that is, is it a rights violation? And the answer would be, yes, it's a rights violation to walk hand over hand into that person's um, uh, apartment. And no, it's not a rights violation to drop to your death uh, uh, 15 stories below. But that's not the interesting question. The interesting question is, suppose the little old lady in this apartment has got a shotgun and she says, I'm gonna shoot you if, unless you drop. Did she violate rights? And the answer is she did not. She did not violate rights because first of all, the, to make it sound less callous and, and put a better spin on it, uh, this lady was raped a week ago by somebody who uh, looks just like you. It wasn't you. Because if it was you and she shot you, that's different. But uh, it looks vaguely like you and she's scared of you. And uh, she had, you know, a very bad experience. And now you're walking hand over hand on the flagpole toward her apartment and she shoots you. Did she, is she a murderer or is she uh, engaged in self-defense? You know, right now there's this kid in um, um, Oshkosh. Um, uh, Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse, who is now accused of murder of two people and shooting a third person, and he's claiming self-defense. Well, I think that this little old lady who was raped a week ago, to just put a better face on it, uh, and shoots you um, moving down the flagpole into her apartment, is uh, engaged in self-defense, and she's not a murderer. So that would be my analysis of the, the flagpole uh, situation. And, and I reject the attack on libertarianism and say, well, you know, private property rights aren't that important. See, in the other case, when I grabbed you before you were gonna commit suicide, admit I'm a criminal. Whereas here, they're, they're saying that the person who walks down the flagpole is, is not a criminal. So what is libertarian punishment theory? Well, there are different views as to, you know, what should happen when somebody steals some bubble gum from somebody's store or when somebody rapes someone or uh, whatever. Uh, let's take an easy case. I steal your car, Matt. Well, the first, and now uh, I'm captured. And uh, the first thing that has to happen is I return your car to you. The second thing that has to happen, I think, as a libertarian theorist, is that what I did to you has to be done to me. Namely, you get my car assuming that the cars are of equal value. And if they're not of equal value, we can uh, you know, throw a few hundred either way so that you get back a car that was equally valuable to the one that I stole from you. And this is called sometimes two teeth for a tooth, not one tooth for a tooth, but two teeth for a tooth, not 1.9 nor 2.1 teeth, but 2.0 teeth. Okay, so that's the first two parts of the punishment theory. The third part is scaring. Uh, sorry, the third, uh, the fourth part is scaring. The third part is um, costs of capture. Now, if after I stole your car, immediately after I returned it to you, or I went into the police station and say, hey, you know, I stole Matt's car, I'm a bad guy, but here's the car and um, I'm turning myself in for justice. Well, then there were no costs of capture. However, if I stole your car and then I ran away and I hid for five years and you and your friends and other private police were trying to find me and now you find me after five years, well, who's going to pay for all those private police? 
Guess who? Me. So that's the third element of uh, libertarian punishment theory that uh, the criminal has to pay for the cost of finding him and capturing him. The fourth is scaring. When I stole that car from you, I scared you. I don't care if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger and you, uh, or Conan the Barbarian or you fear nobody. I'm talking about the average guy. You get your car stolen from and, you know, you're afraid. And if it was carjacking, it's even worse because, you know, then I pulled the gun on you while you were in the car. And if I just stole the car while it was at night, you're still scared. Well, I think that the proper punishment for that is Russian roulette. Namely, hmm. I now have a gun and it has to be put to my forehead or maybe to my pinky for lesser crimes. And the number of bullets and the number of chambers has to be proportional to the amount that I scared you at. So, for example, if I if I carjacked you, more bullets and fewer um, uh, fewer um, uh, places blanks. in mm -hmm. blanks, mm -hmm. uh, fewer blanks, and um, uh, the part of my body is higher, not my toe or my finger, but uh, maybe my stomach or my head, depending upon how bad it was. Uh, on the other hand, if I didn't uh, scare you too much, uh, then uh, uh, fewer. Um, uh, uh, bullets and more chambers and uh, a lesser part of the body. Uh, because what's the other way of scaring you? Uh, go boo, you know, uh, sneak up behind you and go boo. Well, you know, uh, okay, that, that's something. You're saying there has to be actual skin in the game when it comes yeah, to Yeah, well, well depending, upon, depending upon how much scared I pulled on you, uh, it has to be proportional. So I would say those are the four elements of uh, libertarian punishment theory, that, that uh, two teeth for a tooth, uh, I have to give you back your own car, certainly. I have to give you my car. And third, uh, depending upon uh, how hard it was to capture me, I have to pay for that. And fourth, uh, we have to take into account the, the, the fact that I scared you. Uh, and ordinary punishment doesn't take that into account. Now, actually, what ha now happens, I steal your car and uh, I have to give it, I don't even... Probably I have to give it back, but I don't have to give you one of mine. You know what happens, Rather, I go to jail. And you know how much it costs to keep me in a government jail? Something like 80000 a year, more than the Harvard um, uh, tuition. Uh, and guess who's paying that 80000 You. I'm sitting in there, and it's air-conditioned jail, and they've got a weight room, and there are basketball courts, and uh, all sorts of therapy and stuff. So uh, right now you're being victimized twice, once by me and once by the government who now puts me in a cushy jail and uh, makes you pay for it through taxes. I certainly think there is a case to be made that whenever possible, it's best to make the restitution in the form of of a payment and adding in that extra part about the uh, the Russian roulette certainly makes it interesting on the other level, though, that does uh, create kind of a, a problem in that it sort of legalizes criminality for those who can pay the fine. And then for those who can't pay the fine, then they're in a bind because they couldn't pay it anyway. And so then what do you do with them? But we have to take another break here. And actually, when we get back, I want to talk about what might be your most controversial defense of the undefendable having to do with slavery.
Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am talking with Walter Block. Walter is an economist, a philosopher, and an author of a number of books, including Defending the Undefendable, which we're talking about now. It's actually a three-part series. The third part was recently released. And one of the most controversial opinions you've expressed over time, for sure, has been the notion that there might be something called voluntary slavery, which seems like a contradiction in terms, but maybe you could explain how one might have a contract to be a slave. Right. Uh, before I do that, I just wanted to uh, make one more comment on on what we uh, said before with regard to punishment theory. You see, the thing is, if all the punishment was re- uh, uh, compensation, Bill Gates could commit all sorts of crimes and he could get away with everything. However, if you make him play Russian roulette, if you have uh, uh, the ability to make him play Russian roulette, he can buy himself out of it with your agreement for uh, a billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars. Namely, he would no longer be rich after you got through with him. And also, you could insist that he play the Russian roulette if he did something very bad to you. So this would would stop even Bill Gates from um, uh, committing crime. Certainly an interesting idea. It'd be interesting to see what the what the law legal code write-up of, uh, of that would be, for sure. Right. Okay, now let's get to slavery. Uh, here's the situation. My son, who I love, hypothetically, has a horrible disease, and it's going to cost uh, $20 million a cure. And I don't have anything like $20 million, but I value his life greatly. You are a rich man, and very rich. You and Bill Gates are buddies, and uh, you've wa- long wanted me to be your slave. And I could give you economics lessons and um, uh, pick cotton uh, at your plantation, and uh, you could whip me or even kill me. And we make the following deal. You give me $20 million to save my son's life, and I'll be your slave forever. It's voluntary slavery. And um, I benefit because I value his life more than my freedom. You benefit because you value my servitude more than the 20 million. As with every uh, voluntary exchange, there's mutual benefit uh, for both of us. I make a profit, the difference between my son's life and my freedom. You make a profit, the difference between my servitude and the 20 million. And the question is, should this be, um, should this contract be legal? And I will, I'll admit that um, my view that it should be legal is uh, unpopular even in libertarian circles. There are not too many people who agree with me. Uh, Robert Nozick, uh, a great uh, eminent philosopher and, and a libertarian, agrees with me. Murray Rothbard, um, an even greater uh, libertarian theorist, uh, disagrees with me. Uh, so it's a very, very controversial issue even amongst libertarians. Now, I have a little story to tell you uh, what happened was I was being interviewed by the New York Times. This is about in 2015. And uh, they were doing a hit piece on Rand Paul. And I didn't know what they were doing. Uh, they were just asking me about what is libertarianism. And I was explaining this and that and the other. And, and um, either they weren't getting it because they were stupid, which I doubt, or they weren't getting it because um, they wanted a gotcha moment. And I um, used the, the voluntary slavery uh, scenario that I just gave you. And you know what they did? They wrote it up and they made it sound as if I favored actual slavery. I mean, isn't that despicable? Is that a vice or a crime? I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether it's well, a crime. my understanding is that you did sue them or try to make it a crime. Oh, yes, I sued them. Um, 
which is a little problematic because I sued him on the base of libel. And um, we libertarians believe that there should be no libel laws because libel laws just ruin your reputation and your reputation is owned, but is not owned by you. Rather, it's owned by everyone else but you because your reputation consists not of your thoughts about yourself, but everyone else's thoughts about you. So I had to come up with some reason why I could still sue them and still be a libertarian, look myself in the mirror. And I came up with the fact that, well, New York Times is part of the ruling class, and therefore the usual rules do not apply to them. They're not innocent people. Uh, we can only not use libel uh, law against um, innocent people, and they were not innocent. In any case, uh, what finally happened is um, uh, some students five years later, or 10 years later, five years ago, well, I'm not sure that maybe uh, two or three years ago, uh, they uh, uh, had a petition to fire me because I favored actual slavery. Uh, they didn't really, they didn't realize what was going on and they got 500 signatures saying I should be fired. Happily, uh, some former students of mine got together and had another petition saying I should be given a raise at, instead of being fired. And they got around 6,000 signatures and, and no punitive action was taken against me. But I, I certainly did sue the, the New York Times because I don't favor actual slavery. I mean, actual slavery is an abomination. It's probably the second worst thing that man can do to man. The worst thing would be mass murder uh, or murder. Uh, slavery is just an abomination uh, from a libertarian point of view. And, and to think that any libertarian could favor that kind of slavery is, is preposterous. But, um, but look, suppose that this contract that you and I have just um, orchestrated was not legal. Well, that means my son dies. And uh, I love my son. I don't want him to die. I value his um, life more than my own life, let alone my own freedom. So um, I think that the libertarians like Murray Rothbard, who uh, think that voluntary slavery contracts should not be upheld, are wrong. Uh, what is their argument? Well, their argument is got to do with the will. And uh, I say, will schmill. I don't care about the will. I just care about the bod, the body. Uh, because you're now whipping me because I didn't pick cotton quickly enough for you or I didn't answer your economics question well enough. And I'm, uh, I'm not a happy camper. You're, you're whipping me half to death. And, um, you know, I, I call to the policeman and I say, hey, policeman, uh, Matt is, uh, uh, <laughs> is violating my rights. And, and the policeman knows about the contract. He says, sorry, can't help you. But Murray's argument is that uh, uh, you can't alienate the will. Yeah, to to put put that in a different way, because this is also the opinion that I have about it, that you cannot sign away your right to change your mind, so to speak. You might have to face consequences for that. Contracts can be broken, and if the contract is broken, that, that there's going to have to be some kind of, again, restitution, remuneration, atonement, whatever you want to call it. But there's no way that you can have a, a, a sustainable situation where people are able to deny to themselves the right to break their own contracts, basically to change their mind, to act against something that they've said in the past. Again, they may face consequences for that, at least in the, the context of having to pay restitution, but uh, they, can, uh, they can't be. I guess the question is, you know, can you have a, a set up a contract that uh, forces someone not just to pay restitution, but to perform specific acts? I, I don't think so. Well, you and I uh, then disagree. Um, 
I, I, they, I think it's called specific performance contracts. And I think one of the best scenarios that refute your position is the following. I'm a tight rope walker. I walk on a rope 100 feet in the air. And I hire you to hold a net under me. And uh, halfway through my act, while I'm still teetering 100 feet above, uh, you decide to leave. And I have a gun. And I say, you leave, I'll shoot you. Should I be considered a criminal for, for making that threat? I don't think so. I think I should be able to hold you to your contract. Your contract was to uh, hold that net and uh, only you can hold the net or you know, uh, make the uh, case simpler. Uh, I, I, I don't think that uh, uh, I should have to pay compensation. First of all, I can't pay any compensation. I got no money. Uh, and, and secondly, I think it's an irrelevancy. The question is what should the libertarian judge do when I complain that you're my slave owner, my voluntary slave owner, and I wanna be free? Should he set me free and make me pay you something, which I can't pay anyway? Or should he say, look, uh, Walter, you signed a contract. You gotta abide by that. Well, look, uh, Matt, I see you're wearing a shirt. It's a nice gray and uh, white shirt. And, um, you know, you paid 20 bucks for that shirt. And if you go back to the guy who sold you that shirt and say, I want my money back, he's going to say, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm not giving you money back. This was for keeps. You can't change your mind. You made a contract. You bought the shirt for 20 bucks. And now you go to court. And I say any judge that says, well, uh, you have the right to change your mind. Um, I think that judge is not a libertarian judge. It's an interesting example. I just say that there's a couple problems from my perspective. One is that in some cases you simply can't force performance. If I agree with you that I'm going to lift a 10,000 pound stone, well, you know, I, I, I try, I fail, you go get the judge. The judge can't compel me to do it. I simply can't do it. So far as the example... Mm, with that's the, not a contract. That, that's the argument um, for theology where uh, you try to embarrass a theologian and you say, well, could God, uh, can God create a stone so big that he can't lift? It? Or can God create a square circle? No, God can't create a square circle or a stone too big to lift because that's a contradiction in terms. So uh, 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 if you sign a contract saying um, uh, you, you have to lift a 10,000 pound um, uh, weight or something like that, uh, that's an invalid contract. Well, but the point would be that a contract that says I'm contracting to be a slave is the, is the contradiction in terms of itself. I don't think it is because look, we've had actual slavery. It was actual slavery until 1865. And even now in some parts of the world, God forbid, there is actual slavery. So just because you pay for it doesn't mean there's a contradiction in terms. Remember we were talking about the, the kidney, uh, you uh, lend mm -hmm. me your kidney or you give me your kidney uh, and, uh, or uh, you pay for it. Uh, it's the same thing. I, I mean, you can't say, well, if you donate your kidney to me, that's okay. But if, if I pay you uh, for the kidney, that's a contradiction in terms. It is absolutely not a contradiction in terms to say uh, voluntary slavery. Uh, it's not at all like a, a square circle or picking up a rock too big to, to carry because we've had slavery in the past and now we're just paying for it. So how is it a contradiction? How is it a contradiction? Because, because the term slavery implies that you're eliminating the possibility of will, uh, the possibility of that person to say, enough, I, I decline. I want out of this contract even if I have to pay a penalty. And if a person doesn't have the possibility to do that, well, then they're no longer in a 
uh, position of, of doing something voluntarily. They are literally slaves. Well, well let's not call it voluntary slavery. Let's call it voluntary schmavery. <laughs> I don't care what you call it. Uh, you're not going to get away with a, a verbal uh, dispute here. I'm, I no longer favor voluntary slavery. I now favor voluntary schmavery. It's just like voluntary slavery, and we're calling it something different because you don't like that word. Fine. Uh, the question now is, uh, should the court uphold voluntary schmavery? And of course, the court should hold, uphold voluntary schmavery because my son's life is at stake. If they don't hold up voluntary slavery, he dies. We don't want that. Unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Let me just the... say one more word about this schmavery business. I own the shirt that I'm wearing, and if I can't sell it, then to that extent, I don't really own it. I own my body, and to the extent, and if I can't sell it, then to the to that extent, I don't really own myself. So your opposition to uh, voluntary slavery is a denigration of my rights over myself. Women say my body, uh, uh, I own my body. Well, men too should own their body and I should own my body. And if I can't sell it into slavery or schmavery, I don't really own it. We're gonna have to leave it there. Walter, thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find your books and writings generally? Uh, Amazon, I guess, or uh, just Walter Block, Google Google me, and uh, you'll get a lot of stuff because I do a lot of uh, writing and a lot of uh, uh, interviews like this one. Uh, let me thank you for having me. It was really um, a joy. Thank you. I do recommend that people go out and check out your books, The Defending the Undefendable Trilogy, I guess you'd call it. They are a lot of fun, entertaining, thought-provoking, and have absolutely wonderful illustrations. <laughs>